out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, always bringing the finest in indie pop, sometimes before, sometimes after. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the adverts because I spoke to TV Smith a few weeks, months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry and life in a band. What not to like. It's just full of highs, highs, and then a few lows. Anyway, this is the interview, and this is the first part after we had some casual chat to find out more about what life in music is all about. And this was TV Smith's reply. Over to you. Well, I'm still doing 100 gigs a year, so, and, uh, you know, um, so, um, I mean, my whole life is music, really. When I'm, you know, when I'm not touring, I'm writing or recording. And um, um, I can't say, really, I was helped by the music business at all. I mean, all, all, it, all it's done really was hinder me, <laughs> to be honest. You know, I don't I don't even consider myself part of the music business. I mean, uh, when, you know, record companies stopped being interest, interested, which was like soon after the, the adverts, really, you know, at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, um, it was just a question then of uh, you know being directly involved with my fans, you know, going out and play to, playing to them, making my own records and selling to them at the gigs, you know. And so to me, music is a is a, is something about the relationship me and the people who listen to my stuff um, have. It's nothing to do with record companies or the music business. Yes, well, absolutely, and um, obviously you've sort of found the way to sort of uh, navigate that kind of world really well. And also, I mean, you're a bit just a bit older than I am, so I sort of grew up during that period where I suppose I was listening to my, as a, in the kitchen with my mum, listening to Radio Two in the late sixties and things like the car, the Burt Bacharach and that kind of soft pop stuff on Radio Two with um, Jimmy Young in the afternoon and all that kind of malarkey, and then sort of getting kind of excited by those sounds and then I suppose the glam rock period. So you. You were around a little bit earlier than that. So what was your sort of early childhood memories of, of listening to music? Um, yeah, I mean, I do have memories of the of the radio being on, you know, and uh, um, two-way family favourites and all that kind of stuff. Very, very bland, um, kind of middle of the road, aimed at the whole family, nothing offensive, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff. But, you know, when you think about it, I mean, Elvis was going on. Um, yes. I don't know why I never heard, you know, some of the, there was plenty of sort of dirty rock and roll stuff going on, actually. But I don't know. Why, never heard it on the radio. I mean, it, you know, I mean, it, it's always been there. You know, there's always been this urge for, to, to, you know, to have this kind of music that is challenging and exciting and thrilling. But uh, what we get provided with is not necessarily, you know, what's really going on out there. Yes. Well, absolutely. Because when, when I, you know, my two favourite artists were probably David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead. And whenever they were asked, you know, what their earliest musical moment, I suppose that's one thing that sort of gave them that electric shock. And I thought, God, I want to do that was Little Richard. But obviously they were sort of born a little bit earlier than you. Yeah, well, when you see when you see Little Richard now, you know you see old film of him. He's absolutely stunning. You know, I mean, it's mind blowing. <laughs> if Little Richard turned up now, suddenly appeared on the scene, I think he would blow everyone's minds again. Yes, and and obviously back then it must have been even more shocking. And then you know you obviously had Elvis, as you mentioned earlier, which was the one that I think John Peel sort of mentioned. So when you were sort of developing in the sort of seventies, was kind of being in a band, or were you sort of thinking this is what I want to do? I always remember. Lemmy saying he just walked around with the guitar at school because he saw someone else who suddenly was 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 surrounded by young women or girls <laughs> at school. So I didn't know if you were also thinking, actually, that's something I'm also going to do. Actually, what I really loved, you know, when I was growing up was words. And I loved, uh, you know, I was writing poetry at school and, uh, you know, writing sort of novelettes. And, uh, you know, I was always messing around with words. And, uh, you know, it just happened that some of the words I started hearing tunes in my head to and um, started, you know, I got hold of a guitar. I didn't know how to play it. And I started tinkering around with it and trying to find things that would fit with, with the words I'd written. Um, so, you know, I never had, you know, it wasn't a particularly strong desire to be in a band, although that was there and for everything that went with it. You know, I just, I just love music and I love words and I love 
listening to pop songs and thinking, how is that? How, how, is that, how come that works? You know, but actually, you know, there's nothing much to it. How come that works? Has, has that effect on me? Yes. Um, you know, even with simple pop songs, you know, that, you know, complete rubbish really now looking back at it. But then when someone like Bowie came along and, you know, had this extraordinary ability to, to, to mix the words and the music together, you know, and create a third kind of entity out of the two things, you know, that was so much more powerful than the two parts. You know, I think that's really what 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 made me want to do it myself. Yes, because I remember, and it's interesting because I sort of, you know, like I mentioned, I was, you know, Burt Backrack and then listened to the things like The Carpenters at a very young age and then sort of progressed them through to things like Joy Division and, and then The Smiths. I realised I did also, the lyric was always kind of amazing for me, you know, because I, it was, and then, you know, going back and listening to people like Joni Mitchell and Carole King. So those kind of, those kind of lyricists often sort of, um, yes, resonate. I suppose it's, yeah. you know, ability to put quite complex emotions into simple language has always Indeed. been... Indeed. Actually, you don't, you, don't, you know, I, I didn't realise that an awful lot when I was a teenager. I, was, I think it was quite, you know, a snob, really. I mean, now I can listen to Carole King. I think, well, this is, this is pure kind of genius. You know, or Joni Mitchell, but I think he's walking around with Edinburgh, you know, nose and wear, thinking, oh, no, I'm not listening to that. That's not Led Zeppelin, you know. Yes, <laughs> I know, the, the, the kind of the joy of youth, isn't it? Because I remember yeah. people talking about, um, yes, Ian Curtis, he was somebody who loved the sort of romantic poets and obviously his kind of lyrics. So was there any particular poet that or poetry kind of group that you also kind of sort of resonated with at that sort of young age? Um, I loved uh, T.S. Eliot and I loved Ted Hughes and I loved some of those American beat poets like Ferling Getty and, you know, who I was exposed to at school. And um, strangely enough, I found that uh, that um, uh, Ted Hughes lived in the same village as me in Devon where I was brought up um, and, uh, and was <laughs> had been curious in my career as well while I was curious about his, which was kind of weird to find he was living half a, half a mile away from me. Yes. Well, that is very strange. God, that's, a, that's amazing. Because actually it was people like Philip Larkin as well that I just went, wow, that's, yeah, that, indeed. Is, that is quite extraordinary. That is kind of, and even now, you know, you still listen to Philip Larkin going. Yeah, Lying. absolutely. Yeah, it still, still does, does uh, take your breath away. Yeah. And uh, well, it's people who've managed to capture, you know, everyday day life that we're all kind of living and put a new, a new spin on it and a new aspect on it. And, you know, that's what I tried to do in my way as well, is that, you know, it's to actually, you know, not 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 kind of be a cliche about about commenting on on the world and what you see in it, but try and, you know, by looking from one side to try and expose something in it that perhaps you know wasn't obvious or or just colours it or presents it in an interesting way. Yes, well, absolutely, and and also I, I suppose it was a bit like it complements the work of that photographer who I really like called Martin Parr, who sort of captures kind of a certain Britishness, which is mm-hmm. always kind of stunning, and and uh, yeah. various people like that. So then, as as you sort of we were sort of trucking through the sort of seventies with great enthusiasm, listening to, well, you know, there weren't that many gatekeepers during that period, so you, you know we all had to watch kind of Top of the Pops, and we yeah. I don't know heard you know the radio on uh, Radio One on on the school bus going to our secondary modern school did you start to sort of feel um you know because actually i have to confess i came from east anglia in the middle of the countryside punk did not get there for many years so Mm -hmm. we were so so, you know it was very chart music and i had an older brother who was seven years older than me and he introduced me to the work of prog rock so i was listening to doing that kind of mid 70s and and a little bit beyond that was kind of yes and genesis and wishbone ash mainly because it just seemed incredibly interesting and i was very curious as a kid so so punk did you know it was kind of the late 70s but you obviously had sort of picked up on on sort of a certain style and movement sort of in the mid 70s well i listened to prog rock as well in the you know that's all it was if you weren't going to have the car the, the chart um kind of fodder yes but Dave, uh, yeah. i mean you, you must have had a good radio caroline signal where you were didn't you yeah possibly <laughs> i do remember listening to a bit of radio caroline a bit of radio luxembourg yeah you know, so kind of a, the feeling that there's something a bit more interesting going on out there but certainly when you know when you were stuck with the um three minute um um songs about uh, cliches about love you know uh, an, an epic Genesis track was certainly a, you know, a, a, an acceptable alternative until something better came along. 
Yes, well, I, I suppose, you know, everything about it for, a, for I don't know, a 10, 13-year-old, the sort of from the album sleeve to the sort of interests and concepts about King Arthur, which, frankly, at the time fascinated me. Um, you know, yeah. I was like, oh, this is, this is amazing. What is, whatever, stimulates, whatever stimulates you, really, that's the thing. I mean, uh, what bothered me about prog was that it just became so, you know, it just became so self was kind of self-obsessed, you know. It wasn't interested in the audience anymore. It was just all about who could play best, who had the biggest keyboards, and you know, it just seemed to be deliberately people playing for themselves, you know. And uh, and the whole thing is, I think you're trying to present something that 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 you know you've got to remember your audience is out there. Don't lose them by just being so so full of yourself that you you forget there's an audience. Yes. The thing when pink, punk happened, it was, you know, it was direct, it was straight to you, it was right between the eyes, everyone knew what you're talking about. By that time, prog rock had become this sort of noodling nonsense. <laughs> I know, it was comically bad, it was pantomime. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so so look, having sort of interviewed lots of bands from the 80s, I did sort of, there was this kind of the five-year narrative, the classic, you know, you get together, you have 12 months kind of making a sound, and often in, especially that de- particular decade, you know, a single would get to John Peel, who go oh this is good and then that John Peel play a session first album so that's kind of like John Peel was this kind of phenomenal gatekeeper so how did your kind of early period when you were sort of just kind of doing your first rehearsals did you sort of think god actually we got did it click that's why did it start to come together quite quickly um well I was determined that it would come together quite quickly I'd already had a, a band when I was living in Devon you know I had two bands I had a school band and I, I went to art college for a year and all I did there was um, form another band, and um, and this was around the time when there's the first kind of like um, reports in the press about the Pistols, you know, something going on in um, in London, and uh, I read that in the NME and in Sounds, and I thought this is <laughs> this is what I want, you know. So I mean, basically, I've, I've moved to London straight away my my year at art college finished i didn't know what to do with myself except that you know i had a bunch of songs and i wanted to do more and uh so i moved to london and um and started the band yes and uh, this was kind of like summer of 76 i was exactly the right place at the right time uh went straight into rehearsals you know started putting the band together and uh you know within six months so roxy was open and you know, we were given a couple of gigs there and and really, you know, it's like watch it snow, sit back and watch it snowball. Yes, well, I, I sort of I interviewed, um, was it, oh, yeah, Richard Strange from The Doctors of Madness, and he said mm-hmm. we were two years too early. So timing is yeah. everything in this game. Well, not game, but you know what I mean. You know, it's like... Well, I mean, to Richard was one of the... Um, you know, Dr. Moan is one of, one of the bands, one of the few bands that would come down to the West Country where I was living and actually give you a taste, you know, of what it could be like. So, I mean, I absolutely agree with him. You know, I was, I was a big Dr. Madness fan and, and he was one of the precursors who, you know, who unfortunately, you know, was, was, was sort of toppled by, by punk bowling along like that. Yes, I know. He was ancient by the time. <laughs> it's like probably yeah. 25. My God, he was in his 20s. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did go on to work with Richard after the um, after the uh, first Adverts album when I was in a kind of um, kind of thinking about the second Adverts album. Richard and I did, a, did quite a few songs together around at his house. Right. So, um, it, you know, these things all, although he may have appeared to have been, you know, um, kicked out of the punk scene is actually yeah, there was a lot of you know um cross fertilization going on i mean he was, at one point he was he was um going to join the damned at one point he was going to join the adverts as a, as a guitarist actually right so they, yes and then mm-hmm. and obviously just before that you had which must have been incredibly exciting you got yourself a john peel session as well didn't you which must have felt like yay we've made it yes Ish. yes it does it was really yeah it was really good to have that because as you say he was you know if you want to hear what's going on in music you listen to john peel that was it there wasn't really anything else it's not like now where there's a thousand internet sites you know recommending what you should be listening to in those days there was peel you know so uh, to get a session on his show is really, really exciting and important. Yes. So when you, I mean, obviously that, that kind of early period, you know, you, you sort of, did you ever sort of feel, and I suppose a lot of artists sort of have this, where you're thinking, God, we're going to get found out, or did you just have that kind of 
kind of amazing excitement and enthusiasm because it, it kind of, you know, probably looking back on it, it might feel different, but at the time you're kind of quite young and you, you've sort of got that kind of, the, the kind of the charts and you've got that kind of, as you said, you know, the prog rock period as well, which, you know, and people want to sort of maintain the status quo. Plus they've got the kind of the money and the ca capital and the record label behind them. So did you have a sort of feeling of like, blimey, we could like a little boat next to a oh. massive cruise? Are we are we imposters yes. in, in the in the world of, of music? Um, it's um, we never claim to be anything else other than what we were. So I mean, we were comfortable in our skin. You know, everyone the criticism that was always aimed at, at uh, the adverts was that they couldn't play. You know, which to a certain extent was true. You know, but but we knew that. You know, <laughs> we'd only been rehearsing six. We weren't trying to pretend. You know, we were we were. Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know, we just had some songs and we're going out there and we're doing our, our best, you know, and uh, and throwing all the enthusiasm we had into it. Um, so I thought, you know, if they let us onto Top of the Pops, <laughs> you know, great. I, don't, I didn't, I thought fantastic, didn't feel a moment of concern about it, you know, and didn't think about the future or whether it could sustain or, or anything, you know, just, we just got on with it, you know. Yes. And being at that age, because I was born in 64, I was just thinking, you know, you're in the playground at school when you sort of watch Todd Pops and come in on a, on a sort of the Friday. And, you know, there was there was obviously moments that I can remember well, like things like Kate Bush with her weather and heights. And and obviously, you know, Gary Gilmore's eyes was sort of like one of those ones that people were just kind of, you know, if nothing else, we would just kind of repeat those those lines constantly, didn't yep. you? So you must, did, was it a bit of a, you know, I mean, can you remember writing the song? Yeah. I mean, what, yep. was, what was the kind of, you know, did you just kind of scribble it down in a pub or did you, you know, what was the story behind it? Well, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it most, I think a lot of people know now that there was, you know, this American small time um, um Robber who killed a couple of people in a gas station during a robbery. Very sad and pathetic case, really. And uh, but he was getting a lot of coverage as he was on death row um, because um, um, he was saying, "Go ahead and, and uh, execute me." And there was lots of liberal groups saying, "You know, uh, trying to get a stay of execution or to you know to get it reversed." Um, but he was sort of hands up. I did it, you know, and just kill me. <laughs> And uh, and he did arrange that well, you know, after he'd been executed, his his eyes would be um, um, donated. You know, his retinas would be donated so they could be used at least at least you know he'd done one useful thing in his life, which was after his death. And so I kind of that mix up in in my head with the kind of hands of all that kind of horror story where someone wakes up in the hospital. I mean, I'd read it in the newspapers. I thought someone could wake up in the hospital after an eye operation. You know, it was an anonymous donation and read the, the same article and think, you know, I might have Gary Gilmore's eyes in my head. Yes. So, I mean, it's just a fertile kind of imagination with a, you know, turned it into kind of gothic horror story. And it was also the issue of, uh, you know, what what is it? You know, what part of the seas? Is it the physical thing or is it something else? You know, it, it's a kind of interesting Yes, question anyway it is a very interesting one and obviously you sort of introduced the whole i mean you really have made this would have been someone you know there must be thousands of people who've died on death row and no one knows them but you've you've managed to sort of immortalize this guy which is and, and sort of brought to the attention the importance of donor you know carrying a donor card as well yeah which is good and what can you remember working with larry wallace because he was the producer who'd been with um a famous amazing motorhead as well so did was was larry you know an easy person to work with very easy yeah he was a lovely bloke you know super to work with he was uh you know he came in and just gave us that bit of um he was very confident about what he did you know i mean we're, we were a bunch of you know of, of um sort of amateurs really and his experience of um of, of being in the pink fairies and motorhead and his knowledge of music really was 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 helpful you know the way he just got us in in the studio and made us made us go through the song and you know worked out harmonies suggested little drum fills and things you know it, it, it was very good it was great to work with him and we, what we needed was a was a you know was a leader really someone who could because I didn't have any experience in those days I didn't know anything about recording at all so we needed someone who did have the experience just to to take us through it really and yes. he did it really well 
And I have to say, there's a stiff compilation, Five Live Stiffs, I think. He does a version of Police Car, or his version on that live, the live one that I always thought was better than the studio one, actually. Mm, yeah. Just a classic song. But frankly, Great song. it's an amazing song. So then you brought the album out, Crossing the Red Sea. Did that, because obviously your momentum, you must have, did you feel at the time, like, blimey, we, we've kind of caught it? Because, you know, having sort of been obsessed with Bowie, you realise he spent most of the 60s, you know, fudging around and sort of, you know, being a bit sort of hit and miss and a bit fey and, and sort of pretty forgettable, the material he did but obviously because he what he did later we all kind of listened to it but you you just kind of propelled yourself into sort of like yes in, in a sort of a you know a rocket basically wasn't it because the, the speed of all that must have been quite kind of hard to keep a hold on it did move very fast yeah it moved very fast um you know and I had the uh, the kind of prolific writing you know and uh, you know that the, the young people often have and I'd, you know, and I wasn't like just starting. As I said, I'd already had two bands before, and I'd, you know, you might want to sort of gloss over some of the songs I'd written for those two. But, uh, but I was really kind of hitting my stride by the time, you know, um, uh, I was writing for the first Adverts album, and um, and of course it was such exciting times. It was very stimulating. It was very, you know. You know, you were hardly short of subject matter. You know, at the end of the seventies, you know, with punk just just starting off, and uh, we we played live a lot. We had a really good clutch of songs, you know, and uh, you know we had the arrangements, and we were all ready to go really. And we would have actually put the album out, recorded it a lot earlier, but we were actually tied to tied to the road because of the success of um, Gary Gilmore's Eyes. Yes, and were you at that stage also sort of? kind of amazed with this sort of, you know, the first few, can you remember the first few times when you played live to an audience that you didn't even know? Because most people, you know, spend the first bit of time playing to friends and family and anybody else they can kind of emotionally blackmail to see them. But then sort of to go on the road and see people singing your songs back to you must have been one of those, blimey, I've never had that experience. And that will just never, you know, that was like an amazing moment. Yeah, it was a thrill. It was an absolute thrill. To, it's kind of justification for the, you know, for the, you know, already a, a couple of years, but what seemed like a lifetime of um, of starting, you know, working with bands. Because certainly when I was living in Devon with my bands um, in the West Country, that um, you know, <laughs> you were lucky to get anyone in, let alone singing along. Um, so yeah, great, a, a fantastic feeling, and you know, and I've never really forgotten, you know, from that experience how important the audience is. Yes. You know, it's not just you going out and doing your thing. You know what? You know how they react to it is what's important. That's what makes it a good night or not. Yeah, you you can be terrible, you know, but if they love it, then it's a good night. You can be fantastic if the audience don't like it; it's a bad night. Yeah, this is true. But when you're 18, going to gigs, you know, you spent weeks looking forward to it. As long mm. as it's as long yeah. as it's loud, the lights go off. The you know the you, know, yeah. you hear the first chord. The excitement is overwhelming. It's, and did you? I mean, because being in a band, you were you know, were you kind of. You know, dealing with the dynamics within the band as well as the sort of the admin and the management, did that sort of was that just the kind of a bit of a blur at the time? Because that you kind of look back and think, blimey, yes, that was a bit tricky having four people and dealing with us being both young or all being young and and sort of having having to make so many decisions so quickly, but not really understanding the consequences. It was extremely yeah difficult actually, and uh, you know. It, because of a lack of um, experience, really. I mean, you know, throwing a 19-year-old into that situation, it's, uh, you know, what can you do? I mean, it's a, it's a whole new world. Is it? You know, I'd never, I'd never been in charge of four people before. You know, which, we, you know, which was the band. You know, one of whom was my girlfriend at the time. You know, which made things even more complex. Um, uh, we had a, uh, you know, fairly soon we got a manager on our side. He was a great mate. But um, it actually, you know, it, it didn't clear things up all that much because, of course, he was a character on his own, a very strong kind of character. Um, but so he was dealing with with record company, with with um, with um, kind of tour management and stuff. And we were sent out on the road to to to, to deal with, you know, to just do the geeks, you know, do that. Yes. Um, and uh, trying to keep all that. You know, like trying to round, like trying to round up puppies. You know, really, you know, to to, to keep a lid on it all. Yes, I uh, could imagine. Particularly all... when when you know when you have this kind of burgeoning 
success. So the, the you know the record company wants to you know wants to tell you what to do. Your manager wants to tell you what to do. All the members of the band are trying to tell each other what should be the way it should be going. It's um, you know it's a miracle we got through a year, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, always, I do love my BBC Four uh, Friday night document, you know, rock documentaries. And I remember there was one. I think it was about bands reforming, which is, sounds like it can be very hit and miss, mostly on the latter, really. And uh, was it Stuart Copeland from the police sort of talking about their tour, saying we really, you know, they did a tour. I mean, they got paid a lot of money. Everyone loved it apart from him and Sting, who were like three quarters of the band. And they had had band therapy. He said, God, everyone needs band therapy. Is that something that you would have now looking back thought, yeah, we could have just done with somebody who could have just given us some ha- handy advice. I suppose that would have been your manager, really, at the time. I suppose you know it's it's a nice theory, but uh, actually we uh, punk bands didn't really do band therapy. <laughs> we just no. drank more. Yes, this is this is often. <laughs> I know you forget, you know, being that age, it's kind of like yes, we're going to yeah. yes. As, as I think you know, I think when when you know because of the the police were such a big money making concern, I'm sure they were. Uh, I'm sure the therapists were falling over themselves to 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 get in there and and, and keep the band solid. But I think it's most most people's experiences of uh, when the band broke up, break up, breaks up, and uh, then they try and reform it. It's, it's you know it's magic for 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 a couple of weeks, but you know with within after that um, you find that the old cracks start reappearing very very quickly indeed. You know, and usually reforming bands is is not a good idea. No. I think I think from from all these interviews, I think. Well, I think there's there's the you know because a lot of people did the music, you know, the five-year narrative, you know, often the second album was the one that finished them. And if anybody ever toured America, they came back and thought, no, that's really the best. Yes, we're, indeed, not, yeah. we're not doing this anymore. I mean, we didn't even need to go to America. We, we broke up after the second album anyway. <laughs> but but some, you know, after 30 years of, of trying to bury it, sometimes come back because, you know, there's somebody who's passed away and they thought, actually, we could sort of just do it for the fun of it. But that's kind of a 30-year gap sometimes. Yeah. And then there's a few people who want to do the music again, uh, the band from that period but with a completely different lineup because like you said you know th- th- those kind of cracks will never heal properly yeah. you know so it's a bit like i want to do it but with a totally different bass player and a drummer so did you uh, you know did you sort of realize on the second album cast of cast of thousands did it feel like w- when you went into that did you feel like this this was not going to last much longer it was already yeah it was already falling apart quite quite severely and you know we lost lost the drummer already and and got one replacement then that didn't work and then another replacement you know the the guitarist walked out after a while um it was yeah it was fragmented quite severely you know and and add, add to that the fact that um um you know cast of thousands was a commercial disaster you know we were try we were kind of reaching for something you know more ambitious just at a time when punk was getting much more narrow-minded about uh, you know what what was called punk, what what defined it. So uh, you know the the you know the it felt like there was absolutely no point in going on uh, after Cast of Thousands. Yes, which was kind of because you did pack a lot in. You know there was you know for the second album you had a quite a personnel change and. The most horrendous experience, because actually it happened with, I think it was when Kate Bush was touring and somebody, not a manager, but, you know, somebody in the crew sort of fell down and, you know, like some someone had left the, the latch off something and they fell and killed themselves. And one of the theories that why Kate never toured again was because she sort of never, you know, didn't, you know, it just disturbed her so much. That was the end. Yeah. Did you, you also had a death as well, didn't you, with your manager? Well, yeah, but that was uh, shortly after Cast of Thousands. We'd already... We'd already moved on to the next, or I'd already moved on to the next thing, which was, you know, recording Tomahawk Cruise and uh, and doing the first album with the Explorers. But very soon after that, uh, you know, my manager tumbled down a, 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 a the stairwell, stairwell, fell down three flights of stairs. Yeah, which was very sad because he was, you know, very much my friend as much as my manager. Yes, which was so the... that was it was a bitter blow, really. You know, as as I say, I'd left everything in his control you know i did i did the gigs that was basically it and uh, michael dempsey the manager um did everything else so he was in charge of dealing with the record companies dealing with the tours and everything so uh, the publishers and everything so when you know he died i was suddenly in a complete vacuum you know no connection to uh, to anything that was going on in sort of career doldrums anyway because 
you know, the, the, the Explorers album had also been a kind of flop. So, um, so at that point I found myself at, um, you know, at, um, well, start again, basically position. Yes. And, and, and just to sort of, to sort of make your sort of life even more interesting, did you, you also have a legal problem, lawsuits by former members as well. So you, you did sort of in, in a very short period of time, sort of manage to sort of tick every box there could have been probably, and, and having a, you know, one of the members of the band being a girlfriend as well. So, um, Yes. Yeah. Well, the band that I'd broken up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a. It was a. It was not a particularly happy period of my life, I have to say. No. But did, did it feel when you look vaguely back at it, if you can, did, do you sort of, um, yeah, and not not so much about regret, but but did you sort of think, my God, how did I survive all that? Because there there was just so much that happened. You know, as we get older, you slightly have different ways of coping and and sort of. Yeah. But when you're that young and exposed to everything and having so many major things happen in such a short period of time, as well as having huge chart success and having that kind of potential kind of ego, which must you know must be kind of. Pl- tricky to play with especially when you're sort of young and stuff dealing with sort of fans which must be the oddest experience in the world I mean did you sort of also have an excess you know a bit of an existential sort of crisis um yes um but um I've you know I absolutely wouldn't want it any other way because I would hate to be now you know a kind of you know in the clutches of the music biz you know doing whatever you know, I mean, the, the 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 best thing that's happened to me, you know, since that period is that I haven't been successful, which allowed me to go on and do, you know, find my own way of doing it and find my own path. And, um, uh, you know, what I did when all that happened was, you know, I, I'd met um, a keyboard player called Tim Cross, who worked on the on the Cast of Thousands album. He had a, a little, um, a, you know, an eight track tape recorder at home. Um, I kept on writing songs. I went down there and recorded demos with Tim. Um, you know, we did about 50 songs, uh, um, none of which were accepted by any record companies. Um, but I kept working, you know, and I found a way to do it. And I found a way to do it without any influence from, you know, anyone else. Um, so that gave me a great deal of resilience and independence, uh, which has, is, which is, you know, been very important for me when I, you know, subsequently went on to to start a career as a solo artist. Yes, well, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because earlier in the week I interviewed Martin Newell, the what's it? The greatest, oh yeah, great, an amazing character, and he sort of um, had a very has had a very similar sort of story to you. Really, he's he's just wanted to make music, so he just put it out himself, sort of. And as he said, you know, he's got a lot of music, and he and he says, well. Yes, I own it. So all those little pennies that come to me, they might not be a lot, but they all come to me and I, you know, can survive on it and do my other bits and pieces, do poetry, write a yeah. column in the paper, you know, appear yeah. here and there and and sort of have the life I have, have had and, you know, slightly, yes, and now he's well, incredibly happy. So Yes, it's, in, it's interesting that it's not, you know, it's not a kind of monolithic, there's only one way to go if you want to be a musician because I think, you know, it would be very depressing for up-and-coming musicians to think that was the only path. In fact, the most important thing about it isn't that you're hugely successful and getting loads of money. The most important thing is that you're happy about what you do, you know, and fulfilled, you know, in your creative work. And that's, you know, that that's something that I think bad luck brought back to me. You know, I could have gone off on a trajectory where it was all about getting the next record deal or something. But it's not about that for me anymore. You know, it's about the next good song, you know, the next good gig, you know, going to a gig and seeing that people are happy that I'm there. Yes, well, absolutely. And did you, I mean, and also because one thing I sort of um, appreciate by sort of hearing people's stories is that trying to keep keep it going is kind of one thing but then there's also different musical kind of like trends and and I guess now you're not you're probably a bit like me not that sort of bothered anymore you just go oh, I don't know who's who's hit who's hip and happening and who's not but at the time you know when the 80s came along and you know there's all that independent stuff and everyone was getting politically sort of angsty and there was red wedge did you did you sort of sort of surf into that world because you also did you know another band which was cheap and you again sort of did albums and you did John Peel session so mm-hmm. so obviously sort of getting into the next decade you know and and still being sort of active and relevant must have felt quite you know you've done incredibly well at that stage 
um, you know, I was cheap. We're another band that I really enjoyed being in, but uh, we didn't get a record deal. We released, we, we recorded a record. We didn't get it out. <laughs> you know, the thing is, you know, we were going around doing tiny gigs, gigs in backs of pubs. And, you know, we were going out, putting the gear in two cars and going around and driving, you know, uh, wherever we could get a gig and playing for petrol money and sleeping on floors. Yes. So, um, you know, it was not, it was not a successful enterprise in anything other than that we put a damn good record out. Uh, you know, when we finally got uh, got someone to release it, which was after the band had already broken up, sadly. But um, you know, um, they were good songs. Um, we were, you know, we were available uh, for uh, things like Red Wedge, but we never got the call. Bastards. yes that was a tricky one but you know again you know I mean did you I mean when you sort of were looking I mean obviously when you've sort of gone through a period of time being a musician thinking actually I've I've kind of found found how to do it you know so obviously you had that success in the 70s and then sort of the 80s did was as the decades going did you start to sort of feel a bit more confident because like Martin Newell was saying you know the main thing is you know he learned you know he learned his stagecraft being in various bands and being young and just having to go out and perform in front of people and then you sort of learn this skill and then you learn another skill and you think actually now I feel like you know I've done a few gardening jobs here and there I've learned how to prune you know apple trees I can do that if I need to occasionally but then I want to come back and play music did you have to also supplement your sort of you know sometimes your life with doing other bits and pieces Uh, well for 10 years I I got an arts council grant which Actually, it was income support, but I, I called it the Arts Council grant. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I didn't, you know, I was always totally focused on making music. And, uh, you know, and I would do gigs however I could, you know, wherever I could, you know. And I determined that I wasn't, you know, going to pick up jobs and things along the way because I know for so often that is the end then, you know. Well, I can't I can't do that little gig that I've been offered because I've got to do this job. Yes. And uh, I think you have to have a complete, you know, focus that you are going to, even if it means sleeping on floors, even if it means you've got, you know, you haven't got enough money to eat properly, you know, uh, that you have to have to be totally focused and make the decision. Music is what you're going to do. Yes. I know so many musicians who actually didn't make the cut because they decided they were going to, you know, take the easy way out and have a job instead, you know, and try and do the odd gig if they could at the weekends when they weren't busy and it never works out. No, and that is, um, yes, I mean, to be that focused and that clear, it does take a lot more, yes, it does, it is it is a kind of a brave decision. And obviously over the decades, you've, you know, you've built up a phenomenal back catalogue. So playing live, do you sort of have a problem sort of working out what to put in and what not to put in and what and what your sort of focus is? Um, well, obviously, as I as I'm as I write more and more songs, I have to leave more and more out at the gigs, which is you know, which is a bit frustrating. I'm always getting people saying, "Why didn't you play this one? Or why didn't you play that one?" Um, but that's just inevitable unless I do four-hour gigs. I mean, I I try and do an hour and a half to two hours, particularly in Germany, where you know where the, the format suits that kind of thing. Usually, clubs don't aren't closing at eleven o'clock, you know, ten thirty like they are here. Um, but I don't have a set list before I go on stage. I, you know, I, I sort of make it up as I go along according to what some, what the feeling in the room is, what kind of room it is, yes, how many people are there, where they look like. You know, well, I usually talk to people before the gig. You know, sometimes they slip me the idea for a song. You know, before I get on stage. You know, or you get the impression these are people who, you know, they want all the old punk stuff, or you get the impression these people actually like the new stuff. They want more of that sort of thing. And then, it, you know, or it can change as you get on stage. You get a different feel about it. Someone shouts out for something. So I never got, I never write out a set list before the gig. I always just um, play it by ear once I start. Yeah. And do you, I mean, it was interesting because I spoke to, um, I don't know, the guy from The Godfathers. And he said that um, touring Europe and especially Germany is probably the most important thing for them because, um, and a lot of bands have mentioned it, but just because the audience are just so good, especially when it comes to the merchandise and they just, you know, it keeps them financially going. Do you have, mm. have you sort of found an amazing, ba- you know, fan base over Europe and especially Germany? Uh, well, Germany has been my sort of major country, really. But, you know, when I, when I was totally struggling in uh, in Britain, um, I got the invite to go over to um, 
play a couple of acoustic gigs in uh, in Germany by someone who'd seen me in cheap actually uh, play a little gig in London and he wrote to me and said I, you know he'd heard that I was playing solo and he said can we uh, uh, can I organise a couple of gigs in around Munich for you and I and I flew over there and did those and it was you know it was transformative really and that you know although there weren't many people at the gig they were all listening you know even though it was a different language and they all you know they were kind of asking me questions about the songs you know what's the relevance of this bit or you know i thought well this is, i don't get this interest in in britain you know i'm struggling to find a gig <laughs> so you know i really noticed the difference and you know and that led to more gigs and then i went back and back to germany and uh, a big german band called die Totenhosen uh, covered gary gilmore's eyes on one of their records and then asked me to write some um, English lyrics for some more of their records and the, the whole thing just started you know um, snowballing in Germany and it really absolutely you know saved my career um, and was, then later it sort of it, it uh, bounced back to, to Britain and things started improving in Britain but I think without um, without the interest that Germany showed in what I was doing it, it would have been tough getting through. Yes and I, I can remember the band that you just mentioned, Die Tartenhausen. Die Tartenhausen. I'm not sure if I... But I just remember there was a particular album that came out probably in the early 90s that seemed to sort of be one that, whether it was the record companies were trying to push or they were just particularly going for something at that particular time. But it was just... They just started to get a bit more of a, um, yes, public profile or some sort of... Profile. Yeah, what they did was they did a... They did a... As they were all... You know, they're, they're a huge band in Germany, but as they... You know, they also all punk fans they did um they did an album of punk covers called learning english um and uh, got various you know a member of each of the bands they covered to come and do a guest spot on each song and right. uh, i think at that point they came over to to britain and uh, did a few gigs but um i mean they're a stadium band in germany yes a bit like nana <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. But, yeah, but slightly. But, yes, but I can. Know. Still a very good, very good band. You know, they've, they've, you know, they've been number one in the charts over there with their new album for weeks and weeks. Yeah, you must have been chuffed to bits to be on that compilation. You know, the compilation as well, because obviously, well, you know, you probably. Couldn't... It's a bit like it's a bit like you know having the Beatles say you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you probably are thinking, but you wouldn't believe it, guys, but I can't get arrested in this country. And you, mm. you know, so they must have, yes, because actually Lemmy was also this. He, I always remember listening to one of his interviews and him saying that, you know, for a while no one wanted to know them, but the German market or the German yeah. audience just really loved them. So there's kind of whole infrastructure in Germany. You know, there's a lot of small clubs, you know, there's a lot of places to play. And they're very, very enthusiastic about. You know, these the sort of mid small level bands, you know, just playing to 50 to 200 to 300 people. And so that scene has been kept very alive um, and uh, people still get excited about going out to gigs and not not just these big corporate things, you know, sort of super expensive corporate gigs. The, the small scene is very alive, whereas yes. in Britain, you know, small clubs and small pubs, it's really hard. You know, they're closing down all over the place. Yes, or they're just burning down, which they, <laughs> which is a really sad idea. I mean, do you feel because you had a film, you, you know, I mentioned BBC Four, but you had a documentary on you in sort of the early part of this decade, or the decade just gone. So, did you do you feel that sort of with the with the passing of time, you you've become a bit of a national treasure and a bit more appreciated? You think, God, I wished you'd done this in the nineties. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's nice to, to that people think that, but of course, it is a, it, it is just a, a, a result of sticking around, really, and, and keeping the quality up. Um, you know, it's. Well, I'm happy to be. How <laughs> lovely to be a national treasure. <laughs> well, I know. And what would you? I mean, just lastly, I mean, what would you kind of say to a sort of your 18-year-old self, or, you know, somebody who was starting out that you think, by the way, this is something that I've really learned by sort of being around this this kind of world for a, a few decades, just this one bit of information, or not information, but just kind of, you know, advice well, or wisdom. To, to my to my 18-year-old self, I'd say um, prepare yourself. It's going to be tough, you know. That's the thing. It might look good, you know, when things are rolling well, but you are going to, you know, you're going to go through rocky patches. You just have to hold your nerve, hold your nerve. Yes. And did you sort of, and do you feel like 
that when you sort of look back and you see the body of work you've done, does that sort of... Are you amazed sometimes? You think, blimey, I've done all that. I can't believe I it. Do some, I do sometimes look back and think, good grief, so many songs, you know, so many songs. I've, you know, it's... Uh, it's quite uh, it's quite overwhelming one really you know to, to um, you know I sometimes think well <laughs> actually nobody knows me I'm not in the charts you know I'm not on the radio well here we are on the radio but um, you know uh, and I haven't got a high profile I haven't had any help from the music business but nevertheless there's a whole bunch of songs people come to gigs and they enjoy it you know and I'm I'm proud of that I think I'm, I'm proud of of that than anything and the fact to do it without the help you know. Yes. Just to prove that you can do it. If you've got, if you're quality and you believe in yourself and you hold your nerve, you know, and you think about your audience, you know, and uh, and connect with them, then you can do it. I think it's an important message for, for anyone who's, who, you know, who wants to be a musician. And you must be feeling, you know, really pleased because with this, this particular year coming up, you've got, you know, some, you know, like quite a lot of dates and, and a sort of an amazing tour with Stiff Little fin- Fingers as well. So you're going to be sort of playing quite large venues as well, which is going to be probably quite amazing to sort of, you know, be out there, you know, still sort of um, capturing quite a big audience at, at sort of all these kind of particular gigs. And do you sort of, on that kind of front, do you sort of have to sort of physically build yourself up for it a bit and sort of go, right, God, I've got to prepare now. This is going to be quite hard. No. <laughs> <laughs> no i've done i've done so many gigs now you know the fact is everyone every gig is incredibly important i'm always incredibly nervous and you know uh, before every gig you know whether it's for 15 people or or 15,000 people it doesn't actually make any difference to me yes. you know you're you're in the you're in that space before you you, you play your gig and, and you know it doesn't make an awful lot of difference to me to be honest and with, 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 with a lot, we have a lot of these kind of weekend gigs and festivals that take place now, not necessarily on a muddy field. But do you sort of, um, when you're sort of bumping around backstage, do you sort of have those kind of chats with various people that you might not have spoke to decades ago, but sort of go, blimey, we're still doing it. I just wondered if there is that sort of kind of, you know, like people who have gone through, the, not the war, obviously, because that was probably more, you know, but, you know, that kind of way. <laughs> the, the punk rock wars. The punk rock, you know, we, we, yeah. we're still vaguely doing this. And Absolutely. Sort of, I mean, you, you, we do some, obviously, you know, particularly at these punk festivals, you know, you know, see all the old <laughs> people you know, we were hanging around with 40 years ago and, uh, you know, and to think, did you think you'd still be doing this 40 years later? Yes. And you probably went new. I'm sorry. And you probably thought, no, we definitely wouldn't be doing this in 2000. No, 2020. I don't. I didn't think I'd be alive. <laughs> <laughs> let alone, let alone play music. Yes. But, um, you know, it is. A, it. I mean, I love. I love the fact that you. You know, you. You keep getting better at it. You know, and. Uh, you know, I still love playing gigs. I still love thinking that every gig is going to top the last one. You know, I'm going to perform better. You know. You know, I'm extremely disappointed with myself if I don't play well you know it's very very important to me that every every single gig is the best it can possibly be yes and and I talked to um is it Joseph from Blythe Power and he's he's got loads of songs he wants to put out do you sort of have a a kind of and he he has a bit of a problem with the financing of it in saying he just you know it's kind of getting the money to do it and he wants to do a good job do you sort of struggle on that side of it because obviously you've you've you know brought out a lot of albums recently including you know a couple of years ago land of the overdose do you do you mm. sort of think jesus i really need to get another album but i haven't got them cash at the moment no that's uh you know i've, I've been doing it long enough now to that i've found a way to do it you know i mean i, I earn my living for, by doing so many gigs and um you know and uh, i finance my own records you know and there's no record company involved and and one finances the next you know my major problem at the moment is that i'm touring so much i don't have time to write a new album right which is quite an amazing yeah. place well it must be a great yeah. place to be in but it's you know I there's no the last album came out um actually what was it just over a year ago um and my general kind of my my general rule of thumb is an album every four years or so you know um and at the moment what you know, I'm finally in a position, you know, where people do want to see me live and where the audience is getting bigger. And uh, that's my priority at the moment is to go and play live. Um, that's where you've got your direct contact. You know, there's still new people coming in who haven't heard these, you know, 300 songs that I've written. So uh, my priority at the moment is presenting, you know, what 
I've already done to the to the pe- to the new people who are coming in. Yeah. Do you feel like one of those kind of um, old blues guys still doing it and thinking, Jesus, actually, I'm going to be one of those blues guys in my 80s, rocking it still? I hope I am. Yeah, I would love to still be doing it when I'm 80. But you know, I've I've had the uh, the great luck and advantage of having good health, which means I can still go out and do um, high energy gigs the way I do them there's absolutely no guarantee that will last forever and so you have to be realistic about that when you're 63. <laughs> yes it's true but luckily we've now got sort of these role models ish you know who are sort of thinking blimey they're in their 70s hey, look at Iggy look at Keith you know or not absolutely yeah so um it's kind of it gives everyone sort of a certain amount of uh, I don't know optimism I guess. Well when we you know when I was growing up you, you know bands didn't exist beyond um beyond you know their tw- mid-20s you know there was either that or there was the old blues guys you yes. know, things have changed very much you know, know in the meantime when you look at the stones going out you know whatever you think of the rolling stones they do a fantastic live show you know they're full of energy full of life they put lots of bands of third their age to shame so uh, um um you know i think that there is hope for longevity in the you know in uh, in music I know. Well, I, I, I'm, you know, I must admit, you know, I'm, I'm even sort of, though I never particularly loved them, I'm still impressed that they managed to keep it together and not kill each other. And that's people like you too, actually, because I thought, God, yeah. you know, credit to you, mate. You know, I've, you... <laughs> I've got respect for anyone who can keep doing it, to be honest. And uh, um, I know it's 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 uh, very trendy for bands to be snidey about each other, but. You know, I think that anyone who goes out and does music and keeps doing it, you know, is worthy of respect. Totally. I completely agree. Yes. When you get to an age, you think you can't really. There's worse things to hate than Sting. Yeah, really. (laughs) If you don't, you know, if you don't like it, don't listen to it. Yes, I know. (laughs) That's what I kind of think. It's like, come on, in this day and age, you know, you can't, you know, it's a bit like saying you hate Enya. You think, come on. This is for for teenagers. Oh, no, I can't listen to that. (laughs) This is true. I know. We used to say, you know, never trust anybody over 30 thinking well that that went out the window didn't it but look, yeah that had quietly sidelined that idea hope i die <laughs> before i get old Ooh, actually yeah. yes. <laughs> can i can i rethink that yes yeah. brilliant well look tim thank you ever so much for giving me your time for this and i will tell you when i put it out and then you can always link it to whatever sites you've got as well because i'm because I'm, you're all over the facebook and twitter I'm, I'm like all over it like a virus i know i know it's so easy <laughs> to do as well but look i really hope yeah. it all goes fantastically well because um yes and hopefully you'll be in Norwich in a couple of months time that's right yes so uh, if you if you want to come along to that let me know and uh and uh yeah get a chance to actually get out to, to live gigs i don't know yeah well occasionally this is good <laughs> anyway look best of luck and uh yeah, all right Thank have you, a great David. year thanks tim all take right. care Pleasure. Bye-bye. bye-bye